Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Rishikesh Hurway. Rishikesh is a musician and podcaster extraordinaire based in Los Angeles. Rishikesh has created music as a solo artist, as a producer, and even alongside musicians such as Yo-Yo Ma, and has created music for video games such as The Red Lantern and Netflix series such as Everything Sucks. But perhaps what he's most well known for is the creator and host of the wildly successful podcast Song Exploder where he interviews world-class musicians and breaks apart how they created their hit songs completely from scratch. In this episode, we talk about growing up in an Indian immigrant household, the fear of side projects taking away from our main musical interests, how his studies in philosophy and graphic design in college contributed to his music career, and much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Rishikesh Hirway. So you grew up playing music, and we're both of Indian heritage. So there is kind of this interesting thing when you're growing up in an Indian household. You had this interesting upbringing, kind of different from me, where your parents dreamed of having a piano in the house someday. But at the same time, there's the expectation in an Indian household of you're a, a doctor, a lawyer, or failure. Those are kind of your three options. Oh, I had I had a fourth option. Engineer was also acceptable. Of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Always engineer. But those are your four, right? So can you tell me about what helped you to kind of break out of that mold to become a musician, especially when you're kind of maybe implicitly or explicitly pressured to not go down kind of this non-traditional route? I think one advantage that I had was having an older sister. In some ways, she took the brunt of the pressure. You know, she is the good daughter, I think, in a lot of ways that, that I am not a good son. Her Marathi is much better. She speaks Hindi on top of speaking Marathi. Growing up, she knew the names of the film stars and the names of the songs. But on top of that, she knows all the names of everybody's auntie and how everybody's related and who all the kids are. You know, she's just a very great buffer for me <laughs> between my parents and sort of be, like doing things properly. And I think because of our family position, me being the younger kid, it gave me some room to kind of be able to be like, I'm doing it my own way. <laughs> I think if, if we had been reversed, I don't know if I would have felt the same freedom, but I was kind of like, she's got that covered. She's got that side covered. She's, she's an epidemiologist. She's, you know, <laughs> you're good. <laughs> That's awesome. So she had that side covered and maybe that allowed you to feel kind of quote unquote free to go off to Yale and you started with English and philosophy. So tell me about that, that kind of first choice of that study. Well, I guess, yeah, one thing I, I kind of alighted past is that like because of that, like that freedom kind of was sort of an attitude I think I had with my parents where I just argued with them a lot more about what I wanted. You know, I, I felt uh, where that latitude came from and where that attitude came from, I'm not sure, but I just was 
less willing to just sort of be like, okay, yeah, that's this is my duty and this is what I'm supposed to do. And I would kind of say, no, this is what I want. This is what I think is right. This is what I am excited by. And so that started manifesting in lots of ways before it ever got to the point where I was like, I'm going to do music. I, I think I just started asserting myself with my parents in a way, um, you know, when I was a teenager, that was different from how my sister had been with them. But when I was in high school, there was a long time when they, they still thought that maybe I would do something. They knew I was creative or whatever. I don't even know if they really understood what that meant. I remember there was a, they were like, this is an engineering school that also has, you know, a business component too. So it's kind of like, maybe you could do, you can, and like that counted as the humanities for them, you know, <laughs> and you know, it wasn't medical school, but still it was something. And, you know, and my sister had the idea that she was like, maybe you could be an architect because that's science and art in a way, you know, these were the kinds of negotiations we were trying to have. And then when I was a senior in college, I decided I wanted to apply to Yale for college because two of my favorite teachers in high school had gone there. They were students at the high school where I was going. Then they went to Yale and then they came back and taught. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but one thing that seemed okay was being like these guys. I was like, they're cool. I look up to them. And I could imagine worse things than being like, these teachers and they they went here and then they went there and then they came back here so maybe that's what i'll do and they were my english teacher and they were my philosophy teacher ah uh -huh. there it is yeah and so i applied to yale and they and you know i remember on the application it said what subjects are you interested in studying and i said english and philosophy just with that with the idea that that's what they did so I got there and that's how I started off. Mm. And then eventually you ended up switching into art and design. And at that point, most people wouldn't point at you and say, that guy's going to play with Yo-Yo Ma someday. <laughs> that's not the sort of thing that would kind of come up in someone's mindset, kind of looking at that just from the outside. So can you tell me about what it felt like to be figuring things out during that time? Because I think a lot of musicians or artists are told, oh, you have to figure it all out or start when you're four years old or something like that. They think they need to get it done early. But what was that like for you? I wasn't figuring anything out, especially on the music side back then, because I didn't even know that there was something to figure out. I didn't know anybody who had ever made music professionally. So as much as I loved music, and it felt like a really huge part of my identity, this was sort of the thing that I kind of defined myself by more than anything else, it still didn't seem like, I mean, it's not a job. That's not something that you can do with your life. So I wasn't even trying to really be like, oh, how do I professionalize this part of myself? It just was there. The one thing about being an art major with a focus in design is, you know, I was like, well, I'm using this in addition to making album covers for my band or whatever. It was also a chance for me to say, okay, I, I learned how to make a website and hey, I got a summer job making websites. Nice, nice. Yeah, it seems like that stuff transitions into your current path in a super unique way. And what I'm so fascinated by is you started playing music while you're in college. You're playing with 1AM radio and you were playing around as much as you humanly could. Was there a moment? Was there a moment where you're on stage or recording music or anything like that where you thought, ah, uh, or oh no, <laughs> I have to do this? <laughs> It was not until after college that I kind of had my version of that. I was working at a crappy startup and I had the opportunity to go on tour opening for my friend's band. And 
I hadn't worked at the startup long enough to have any kind of vacation time, but they said, you know, if you want to take an unpaid leave for a couple of weeks, then that's fine. I said, okay, that's what I'll do. And so I went on that tour. And uh, when I came back, that was when I felt like I was like, I really want to do this. I just want to make this my life as much as possible. And I think before I left for tour, if you'd asked me, I would have said, I love making music and I want to do it with as much of my life as I can around, you know, whatever my job is. And after the tour, I would have said, I love music and I want to do it as much as I can. And I will make my life whatever it has to be in order to make that possible. And so the next day, my life didn't look any different, but I had made that decision. Right. Yeah. And that made a lot of future decisions probably for you. It knocked over a bunch of dominoes. So you moved to LA to do film scoring, which I think is fascinating. And when you got there, you realized, I think rightfully so, because I'm in the game industry and I used to be interested in film as well. A lot of people get to that point, realize, oh, no, I have to say yes to a lot of crappy jobs or bad assignments or whatever it may be to kind of get my foot in the door and make my way into Hollywood or whatever it may be. What do you say to artists who are in that sort of situation? Because there's a lot of kind of starting points where you do need to say yes to maybe small gigs or small movies or whatever it may be. How do you kind of encourage them? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a matter of what your appetite is, because I think for me, I had no problem doing graphic design, you know, like freelance work that I wasn't passionate about or that didn't feel like it was pulling from my core identity or my core aesthetic or something like that. But when it came to music, it was much more painful to try and work on a film in that way. I was like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. It doesn't feel right to be spending my time making music that I don't believe in in the same way that I believe in my own songs. So I think part of it is recognizing what you're okay with. For the folks who I met who were in similar positions, who frankly got a really great early start in their career, part of the reason why they were able to do it is because they just loved the work so much that they found their way into jobs that might be less exciting or less challenging because film scoring or whatever scoring was such a huge part of who they were that they were just thrilled to have the opportunity. And I think that I, I didn't recognize it at the time, but now I look back and I realize like it's not so much that I wanted to be doing film music no matter what. It's that I wanted to be me no matter what. And I was getting frustrated at the idea that I didn't get to be me in the certain opportunities, or at least not the me as much as I wanted to be. Mm, awesome. Yeah. And there's this, there's this interesting tension that comes up during those points because, you know, I'm not sure about you, but a lot of artists tend to feel like, oh, I need to have something concrete as well to kind of quote unquote prove to people maybe parents maybe friends like oh i'm doing something look i did that movie look i did that thing so was that part of it or not at all no definitely a huge part of it for me as much as i probably would have hated to admit it at the time was trying to find a way to balance my own creative desires with this feeling of like wanting validation from my parents or wanting to be able to deliver my parents some sense of legitimacy for all the choices that I'd made. Because I think for them, you know, they didn't know what I was doing. They didn't understand it. And they, you know, after two decades of arguing with me and me trying to get my way in terms of doing what I want, I think they recognized they couldn't stop me, but they were still worried. And I knew all about that. And it's not like I was like a bad boy who was like, screw you, parent, mom and dad. You know, I, I really wanted them to be proud of me. 
I couldn't be like, mom and dad, check out this great pitchfork review that I got. <laughs> they don't care. They don't know what that means. So I needed to find ways to give them something tangible. And I, I couldn't for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then what's so interesting to me is that you got the idea of starting this podcast, Song Exploder, as a big air quotes day job while you were kind of building up your music career as well. And what's so interesting to me is that most people wouldn't say, oh, I need a day job. Let me start a podcast. Most of the time <laughs> would say, let me go to computer science degree or something like that. So what made you decide to do another quote unquote unsure thing on top of the other unsure thing, which is music? You know, it's a good question. <laughs> like looking back on it, I had so much confidence in the idea that someone was going to give me money to make that show and nobody did. Mm -hmm. But I think it was at a time when I had seen a lot of brands kind of trying to be cool or have cool content, like the idea of branded content. It was in the moment where I think the term like advertorial had come and was starting to wane and like branded content was starting to take over. And at the same time, these tech companies like Netflix and Amazon were starting to make original content. I thought, well, a lot of that was happening in video. And I thought, well, there's no reason why it can't also be audio. Podcasts are a thing. And I have an idea for a show that is in audio. I'm sure there's going to be some audio forward brand that would love to just let me make this show and I could have that be my job. But then I would have to go and actually talk people into not just the idea of this specific show, but the idea of this kind of business model. And anybody who actually did any kind of branded content were like, well, could you make a video version of this? I'm like, no, this is really, it's a podcast. <laughs> What's so interesting is the kind of irony of where things ended up of you being on Netflix, but we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you did pitch to Spotify, didn't you? And they said they turned you down initially, which I think you're way ahead of the curve because I don't think Spotify at the time was buying podcasts like they are now, right? No, not at all. No, their focus at the time was on video content. Mm -hmm. And so they, they were like, no, this is not really what we're into. But this was a long time ago. I mean, like one of the other people I had talked to was MySpace. That's how long ago it was, wow. you know? Yeah. MySpace had just been bought by Justin Timberlake and there was an attempt to kind of make MySpace cool again. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, you might be interested in this. This is, I think is a cool idea. It was a different world. Totally. And tell me where your head was at, though, because you did it anyway, right? There's a really important truth to that where you said, okay, well, let me do it anyway, instead of saying, uh, and then quitting. So where were you at? I I feel like I'm kind of unwittingly making a theme here of like me being stubborn or something. <laughs> but I was like, no, I think this is right. I feel like there's a show here that people are going to like. And so I gave myself the boundaries of a year to make the show. And I was going to just do it on my own. And if nobody liked it after a year, if I didn't feel like there was a future, if it didn't feel like it was something that could sustain itself or sustain me financially in some kind of way, then I would just walk away from it. And, you know, I would consider it an interesting experiment in my life. And, you know, in the, at the same time, I was still making music. I had started a new musical project at the time with Lakeith Stanfield, and we were starting to play shows and make records. And for me, I was like, this is just my time when I'm trying new things. It was the first time I was doing a musical project that outside of the 1AM radio. And I think my head was in a place where I was open to risks and experiments in a way that I hadn't been in a little bit. 
Mm. And speaking of the experiment process, what was that first outreach to your first guest of Jimmy Tamborello from the Postal Service like? Did you already know him or was it just a, oh, let me see what happens? How'd that go? It went fine because I did already know him. I had known him for a while and we had become friends over the years, but especially, you know, this was in 2013 that I had asked him to be on the show. We had gone on tour in the fall of 2011 for a month and we got a lot closer then. So it wasn't the scariest proposition in this part of the reason why I asked him was because he was somebody who I felt I could try this with. And if it didn't work, he wouldn't really hold it against me. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's always good to have a friend to kind of try stuff out on at first. Yeah. And when you were kind of doing this early, early, early days, did you have any inkling of, okay, I know that this is going to take me to X place. Or was it, I'm going to do this as a service to music industry people just so they can hear about the song or just to people in general so they can get an idea of how songs are made? I did it because I just thought it was going to be cool and new. One of the things that I I had been thinking about with that kind of era of the internet was how much the stuff that got really popular, the stuff that got people really excited, there were kind of two modes, I thought. There were people who were very good at aggregating content that existed in other places, you know, tumblers that just like had really great curation. And then there were places that actually made original content. And it was like, oh, this is exciting because this is its own thing. I remember like on the music side of things, there was like Day Trotter. Do you remember Day Trotter? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, it was like doing a Day Trotter session was a very cool thing yeah. because it was a version of a recording by a band that you might maybe liked that you wouldn't get anywhere else. It was a destination because the MP3s of that recording were, that's where you'd find them. So the idea of doing something that nobody else was doing and, and you know, you could kind of put your stamp on, that was really exciting to me. And Song Exploder felt like a, a, a chance to do that. Mm. And what's interesting is that you said in your Atlas Obscura podcasting class that I took, it was great. And you mentioned something really like interesting to me that really stuck in my mind that was every time you do your podcast, you get compounding interest on your legitimacy. So can you talk to that over time, how podcasts have helped you? Because you're not just a podcaster. You write music. You've done music for film and video games. You are have a Netflix show. You have all these different things. How do you kind of reconcile in your head or in your schedule all these things you have to do and how they help legitimize one another in your career instead of just doing one thing? Well, certainly making Song Exploder at first was built on what little legitimacy I had as a artist as the 1AM Radio because the first people I went to were the people I was already friends with. You know, um, folks like Jimmy who I had toured with or or people who I had played shows with or just people I'd become friends with over the years from making music. Those were all the first guests. And the legitimacy that was compounding was I was reaching out to people who maybe they knew me, but they, these were people who were maybe a little bit better known than me. And I could say to the next person, hey, look at these two people who have already done the show. Look at these four people who have already done the show. And eventually, you know, he's like, here's my list of 10 guests. And somebody might look at that and be like, oh, that seems legit. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And when you were kind of in this space, because you were in that age of trying stuff that was just new and fun. You had this interesting sort of mindset of just trying stuff, but I think I see a lot of musicians see sort of these 
sidesteps or these attempts at other things as taking away from the main thing. Like I see a lot of musicians saying, oh, if I'm not performing all the time, I'm dying or I, I'm failing or something like that. Is that what you thought at all? Or were you fine with just trying stuff and seeing what happened? No, I definitely felt that way. Part of the reason why I had to have this kind of seismic shift where I had this year of like, oh, I'm going to experiment with other things. Because for 12 years, really, I felt like I couldn't do anything except try and put my foot on the gas pedal on my music career. I, I really, I was like, I can't take my eye off the ball. It's such a hard life and it's such a hard process and you never know if anything is going to work out, but you have to just keep trying. And as soon as you start doing something else, there's a zero sum game of effort. And it might be like, oh, well, you were working on this thing instead of doing this thing, instead of doing your music. So I was only able to get to the place where I was like, well, I'm going to try other stuff because after a decade, more than a decade of being in the music industry and trying to make it my career and, you know, and for a while having it be my career, I felt like this is just, it didn't feel sustainable. It didn't feel self-sustaining for sure. It felt like I just had to keep grinding to just have some kind of modicum of a life. And that didn't really feel great. And I and I think I, I burnt out and I got writer's block and I just didn't want to write another record. So that was when I got, I got to this like kind of existential crisis of like, what else am I going to do if I'm not doing this? And that was in 2013. And that was like this year of like, well, let me see what else I can, what else is in my head. Mm, gotcha. And you mentioned earlier that there's like a, a theme of stubbornness or defiance or anything like that, but I'd call it patience because it takes ages to make a record takes ages to even book a guest sometimes on a podcast or make a podcast or edit a podcast to make a Netflix show. It takes so long to do these things, have a career in music. You just mentioned 12 years. You started Song Exploder in 2013 and it's still going. We're in 2022 now. So where does this patience come from? Because it seems to be such a useful virtue. That's so funny. I, I don't think I would ever describe myself as patient. <laughs> I think I, uh, I guess I sometimes feel like th there's a, you know, the show Freaks and Geeks. Oh, yeah. I remember Judd Apatow once was talking about this show and he, he was talking about the geeks side of things, you know, those three guys. And he was like, well, you know, the thing is, they don't think they're geeks. They think they're cool. <laughs> and they're just waiting for the world to catch up to them. And I think I felt that way a little bit about some of these things too. Like with Song Exploder, I was like, I think this is cool. It's just like people haven't, I guess maybe it was patience, but I, I was impatient for people to, to <laughs> catch up. But I, I just felt like I had to keep going with it. And, and eventually someone would say, yeah, oh, all right, I get it. I like this. Mm, gotcha. I like that. I like that mindset a lot. And through all that time, you know, you're writing music, you're releasing music, you're playing and you're making podcasts, many, many, many podcasts, not just Song Exploder. And you even just released a new record yesterday, Rooms I Used to Call My Own, which is awesome, super cool. And I know for you, there's this kind of balance that you always have to play between your 8,000 different podcasts, your records and all that. Did you ever feel that going back into writing a new record was kind of scary after taking a, not a break, but some time away from writing just an album for album's sake? Yeah, it was very scary because I didn't know if anybody cared. You know, I didn't have the same kind of confidence that I was just describing where I was like, oh yeah, if I make Song Exploder, people are going to eventually come around to realize that this is cool. I think because, again, kind of like with this film scoring thing, I didn't think of Song Exploder as like my primary mode of being. It wasn't like my core identity. 
it was just something that I thought was cool and I thought I could make. And I thought, I was like, I know how to execute this. I know what the idea is and I know how to execute the idea. Whereas with music, um, with my own songs, I'm like, oh, let me tear off a part of <laughs> who I am and try and like hold it up and make sure people like it. it it's much scarier. And I also don't know how long it's going to take versus a song exploder episode where I'm like, okay, I, I get it. It's going to take me this many weeks or whatever. So it was daunting because I thought, yeah, there's a chance that nobody's going to like this. There's going to be a chance that it'll take me forever to get nowhere, essentially. But the alternative at that point was worse to consider. The alternative was what I had been living with, which was not making music and just sort of trying to hold on to this version of myself that was kind of shrinking in the rearview mirror of a time when music was my whole life. So faced with that, I was like, well, I'm going to just try and get back to it and hope something happens. <laughs> and how long did that whole process take to get through the self-talk and then finally release an album? Well, I didn't write a song, you know, a song like one of my songs. You know, I wrote music with Lakeith for Moore's, but he wrote the lyrics. So without that pressure, you know, those really felt like a collaboration between the two of us. I wrote the music, he wrote the lyrics. But in terms of a song where I was really making it about me, I hadn't written a song like that since 2011 until 2018. So there's a seven-year break. And then I wrote one song, and then the Netflix show started. And then I went another two years working on that before I could start again. So I didn't know if I could. Then I finally felt like, oh, maybe I still can. But really, this whole process of making this record that just came out kind of started in 2018. That was when I was like, oh, I can still make music and I really want to. And then most of the songs, most of the work was done between December of 2020 and December of 2021. And how do you feel now that it's out in the world as of yesterday? I feel content, I think, or relieved. I'm, I'm not sure. I feel, I feel happy that something came out. You know, it's an EP. It's not a full length. It's not 12. It doesn't feel as monumental as putting out an album, but it feels monumental in the fact that I put out anything at all. And I was in such a rush to get something out because now I was the person I needed to prove some legitimacy to, but I just wanted to be able to say like, yeah, I'm making music again. So these six songs, having them come out feels really good because I think now I can go back to saying I make Song Exploder out of the real world experience that I've lived as a musician, as opposed to people, somebody being like, oh, really? what music do you do? And I was like, well, I mean, last record I had came out, you know, seven years ago, but I, I promise <laughs> I did it for a decade before that, you know, right. it was hard. Cause it's not like the 1am radio was big enough that any, you know, 99% of the people who were on song exploder had never heard of it. And most of the people who have listened to song exploder have never heard of it. So it wasn't really the kind of thing that I could use as a calling card or anything. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. And yeah, like, again, just a testament to how long this sort of stuff takes and how much time it can take from your day to day. And you recently, somewhat recently, finished up all your other kind of secondary, I guess, quote unquote, podcasts. You know, you have partners, West Wing Weekly, Home Cooking. Those are all wrapped up, at least for now. How do you use that extra time? Is there extra time? What are you focused on learning or anything like that? Maybe there is no extra time. <laughs> yeah. The, these last few months up until yesterday have been pretty brutal, actually, because I, I made a second season of Partners, which is about to come out. The trailer for it comes out. It gets announced uh, next week. So that's, that's been happening in the background. And then I've been working on some other stuff. The other show 
that has been announced but hasn't come out yet is the, this Spanish language version of Song Exploder called Canción Exploder, which has been a project that I've been trying to get off the ground since 2018. So those are two shows that are kind of like in the oven right now, along with, you know, while I'd been working on the record and then and then going on tour and then doing Song Exploder still. So some of the things wrapped up, but other things came and took took their place. Sure. As it goes, as it goes. That's pretty common to fill in that white space with more fun things to do. I tried to make a New Year's resolution of being like, I'm going to not say yes to things and just focus <laughs> on the stuff that I've got. And then maybe, you know, maybe I'll use the extra time to have a life or something like that. <laughs> But that was also when I thought maybe the pandemic was going to be ending. And then it's like, well, no, here we are. So, <laughs> yep, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Who needs a life, really? <laughs> I mean, it's such a common music or creative person thing to just be like, I got to try all this stuff. I remember I heard someone call it being an art shark. You just have to keep creating or you die. <laughs> 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 so I like that. And it's kind of a common way of thinking, I've noticed. Yeah. But throughout, all of this process, this whole music career, podcasting, Netflix, everything that you've done, has there ever been a piece of advice that's been given to you, maybe even offhandedly, that has completely shifted your view on everything that you're doing that made you say, oh, that's what I should be doing. This is it. I don't know if it counts as a piece of advice, but I think I, think I got a lot of insights into how I work in the process of going to therapy. I had a very good therapist who I worked with for a number of years and he was like a Jungian and he, he kind of really believed in like the idea of archetypes that everybody contains, you know, a multitude of archetypes. And it was important to sort of identify what those archetypes are. And I had this artist archetype and I also had this kind of business person archetype and a whole host of other things. And the core part of the artist side of me was the part that like made music that like wrote and made songs and that archetype was engaged a little bit in the creative work of making song exploder but not in like the same kind of deep way and part of the reason why i was so sad for a lot of years is because i had essentially neglected this archetype but another archetype that i have is a person who is like interested in doing a lot of different things and if i just do one thing even if I'm doing it like sort of really at a, at a level that's really satisfying, I won't be totally satisfied because I want to be able to say like, I'm actually doing these five things and they're all different and they're all, you know, unrelated in, in some ways, but they're all connected to who I am. So what had happened was I was engaging with the part that kind of like jack of all trades side of me. And I was engaged with this like business side of me, but not the artist side of me. So I had to figure out a way to bring that part back into my life. That's not really necessarily advice that is going to be applicable to anybody else, but I guess the core of that is you know sort of knowing yourself and knowing who you are and what makes you happy is so important before you can decide like how you're going to spend your time or where you're going to spend your time. Yeah, I think in one of Adam Grant's books, he calls it that some people are hedgehogs that just do one thing, they just stick their quills out and just hang out. And some people are foxes who run and jump and explore and just kind of jump around. And you sound more on the fox end of things, doing doing multiple things. And I think hearing from you that it's okay to do, because a lot of musicians feel guilty doing multiple things. Like, oh, I'm not just playing piano nine hours a day. I must be a bad person. So it's really validating to hear that it doesn't have to be that way. No, because you could do that and be doing yourself a disservice. 
you could actually be creating a lower quality of life for you if if what your brain and your heart want is two hours of piano a day and then two hours of guitar and then you know an hour and a half of drawing or whatever of managing somebody else's career who knows yeah totally and nowadays now that i mean i guess album just came out yesterday but maybe there's something on the horizon is there anything you're excited or focused on learning whether it be music or not even can be completely unrelated well i've been thinking primarily about getting better at spanish because i'm trying to work on this spanish language (laughs) version of song exploder so that is a very direct answer but i think more abstractly i'm still trying to learn how to navigate those things that we were just talking about. The idea of finding space for all the different parts of who I am while also not neglecting all the different parts of who I am. That's been tricky, but the fact that I I made this record only happened because I was able to find some space for being a musician again alongside, you know, making podcasts and other weird projects. I think if I can figure that balance out a little bit more, like refine it a little more and make a little more space for music, then that would be great. But yeah, it's a combination of kind of like knowing where, you know, you kind of go from the coarse knob to the fine knob. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I feel like I've got the coarse knobs in a pretty good place at the moment. And it would be wonderful to kind of be able to get to the next level and fine tune things. Mm, and in terms of all of these things, now that you're, that you're on the fine knobs to get to this point, what do you think one of the best decisions you've ever made is to get to allow you to get to this point (laughs) well going to therapy honestly (laughs) awesome (laughs) yeah i think that there were insights in that that have been huge for my ability to navigate all of these things and feel happy it also made me a better interviewer having to have the process of talking to someone and seeing how they try to extract a deeper answer has been incredibly helpful in terms of understanding the kinds of insights that I'm looking for when I talk to somebody on a podcast. So I think that might be the single biggest career influence decision that I've made, even though it had nothing to do with anything professional at the time. That's so important, though, because I've gone to therapy before, too, and it's so, so helpful. It's incredible. And there's still a small stigma around it from time to time in, in our world. It's getting less and less, which is great. Yeah, well, and especially if you're Indian. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Mental health doesn't <laughs> exist in the Indian world. Yes. <laughs> you just try harder. Right, <laughs> exactly. If you're like, you're a therapist. Oh, you know, that, <laughs> that's, that's an sound. indication that something is really gone wrong. And then you spare a little bit of sympathy for this tragic person. <laughs> yeah, they'll never be well again. They're just right. there forever. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And nowadays, like, Do you ever feel any of that like, oh, I still need to be having something concrete? Or is it done now? Have you gone past that point, speaking of, you know, the Indian kind of upbringing? Yeah. You know, I think what happened was I had a couple of moments of successes that I could point to for my parents that were more easily understood by them, where I could say, look, this happened. And they were like, okay, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I think the thing that really made them shift back in their seat and feel like, okay, things are okay, was when I eventually, like I bought an apartment, I bought a place Mm. to live. Mm. And then they were like, okay, that is a level of security that we understand. Even though it wasn't that secure because like, how was I gonna make my mortgage? (laughs) That was a very hard question. But I could say like, hey, I got the down payment for this because of my career as a creative person. And they're like, all right, okay, then that's 
Sure. Sure. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Just, it's a clear, easy metric, which is what sometimes you need to show in, in that situation. Yeah. I feel like they kind of let up after that. And, you know, at that point, they already knew that they weren't going to talk me out of it. But at least then they could say, okay, yeah, you, you, you got somewhere and we can, we can relax a little bit. Awesome. So just a few questions to wrap up today. There's a question I ask everybody who comes on here. When you were first starting out as a musician, and that could be at any point, that could be when you're in college, that can be when you first started playing anytime. How did you define success? And how has that changed? And what does it feel like now? What is that definition now? Well, I didn't know what it was for a long time. A friend of mine, Mike Mohan, who's a film director who I met when I first moved here, he and I have collaborated on a lot of things. He made the first music video for my band for the 1AM radio. And the first film that I ever scored was his first full length that went to Sundance. And then I did a, the music for his Netflix show um, after that. So we've worked together a lot over the last 20 years. As a result, he's heard a lot of my insecurities. <laughs> he's, we've given each other a lot of pep talks over the years. And I remember at one point when I was feeling sad or jealous or just down about how things were going, I think he asked me, he said, what would success look like? Like, what would that mean? You're so unhappy right now. What would it take for you to feel happy? And I thought about it and I gave him this answer and I don't think it's changed for me since then. I feel like success would be if the people whose work I respect, respected what I did. I think it's some kind of acceptance from people who I want to consider my peers. And that's rough because it's a matter of external validation and you can't control that. And uh, I have gone through enough therapy to know that that's, that's a hard yardstick to measure something by. So it's not an ideal answer, I think, in, in terms of sustainability, but it still feels in my heart like what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And it does feel good when that does come up. I actually was interviewing a few other people and they said the exact same answer as you. It's a common thing. And, you know, it feels amazing when it comes up. Yeah. Awesome. So last question, where can people find you? Plug anything you want. Well, my website is rishikesh.co and there's links on there for all the stuff that I do, my podcasts and my music and other weird projects. I made a cookie that came out this month and <laughs> there's... Just all that stuff is lives on the website. So that's probably the best thing. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Rishi Hirway. Um, I hope people who like this might check out my music or they might check out a podcast or anything else. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Loved it. Thanks for having me. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game, music, and sound. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time.